Well, good morning. <laughs> Feeling good today? My name is Jason Wetherill. I'm the Family Life Minister here at Windsor Road, and we really do want to welcome you in today uh, as, we, as we take a look at some tough verses. Um, I, but before we get to that, the, you know, the older I get, uh, I don't know if any of you are like, like me in this, but the older I get, the more convinced I am that I never uh, matured much after age about eight or ten. Okay, I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but uh, a few years ago, we, uh, we were super blessed to take the kids to Disney with Elizabeth's family. And, uh, and I tell you, even at age 29, with four grandkids on the trip, I was the biggest kid in in our group, you know, dragging everybody, oh, it's Mickey Mouse, you know, and dragging everybody over there. It's a small world ride four or five times in a row, right, honey, you know, and all this kinds of stuff, okay, you know, ooh, a Mickey bar. Well, um, the, other, the other place where this shows up for me is that when I am excited about something, I just can't sleep for like nights leading up to it, you know, even today as a grown-up. And I don't know if any of you feel like that at all. I had an opportunity recently uh, to get to be on TV with some friends, and for two nights leading up to this event, I couldn't sleep. And I did the thing where uh, if you have this, you know, where like two nights before you like wake up in a terror a couple times in the night thinking it's actually the night of the, you know, the event or whatever. And it's like, oh no, you know, I have to look at my phone and remind myself, no, it's not that day. Okay, it'll be fine. Uh, But I just, I, I just, I get so excited about things. And I don't know about you, but for me, I, I sometimes run this danger where I'm, I'm always looking so forward to the next event that sometimes I barely enjoy the one that I'm in right now. You know, sometimes I, I, I'm so much anticipating the next thing that's coming that it's hard to enjoy what I already have. You know, I'm watching a football game, and it's like, well, this game is great, but, but next week our opponent, you know, or you're watching the kids grow up, and you say, oh, you know, this stage is so much fun with the kids, but I just can't wait until the next one. That's just going to be so much better. Or, you know, this version of my smartphone has all these adequate features, but I, I read this rumor about the next feature that might be coming out in the next version. And I think if we're not careful, we can end up wishing our whole lives away. I think we can spend so much time looking ahead that we don't even look around us at all. And and I think few places is this more obvious than the text we're going to look at today. Uh, That, you know, our good friend Samuel L. Jackson helped to introduce some of the topic that we're going to look at today in Mark. So if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be in Mark 13. Uh, Or if you want to grab a Bible out of the chair in front of you, that's page 719. Um, But we're, we're in a series called The One. And we're working our way toward the cross. We've been working our way through the book of Mark. And we're looking at these different experiences that Jesus has had along the way. Today we're going to be in, uh, in Mark 13. And Jesus gives us some pretty dark words about what's coming. Very specifically, he gives some words to his disciples about what they can look forward to with the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem and things that are coming for them. But he also offers some words for us. And I think if we're not careful, this is one of those times where it's like we can scrutinize every brushstroke that he paints with and miss the masterpiece that he's trying to give us along the way. All right, so Mark 13, again, page 719 in your Bible and the, the 
in the chair. Here's what it says in verse 1. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now the disciples are impressed by the temple in Jerusalem, and rightly so. We've got a picture of it here. It's just gorgeous, just a gorgeous, gorgeous thing that they're just marveling at this. In fact, the, the first century historian Josephus wrote these words about the temple. So take a look at this and then listen to these words. Josephus said this, Now the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's mind or their eyes, for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor, and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would have done the sun's own rays." It's just gorgeous, right? What's more, there's been a 50-year campaign going on at this point to, to expand this temple. And at this point, Herod the Great is kind of sitting at the helm in that campaign. They're trying to make what was already incredible even more so. Well, verse 2. Do you see these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. That's a pretty big statement for Jesus to make to his disciples. When you consider that their belief, that God's people literally believed, God's presence resided in that place. And he's saying it's all going to get ripped down. Psalm 132, 14 says this, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. So they believe God's presence is literally there in the temple. And Jesus is saying the whole thing is just going to get leveled. He's saying that, that this temple has become, God, has become obsolete and God is going to allow its destruction. It's similar to a, a couple weeks ago when we talked about Jesus cursing the fig tree. Okay, and the statements that he made about the money changers in the temple. But talking about the temple and the destruction of it sets off some alerts for his disciples. Because they had a thinking, they had an understanding that was the destruction of the temple equated the beginning of the end times. That this was going to be kind of the end. And so when, when this whole, when he starts to talk about this, they've got some major questions. So verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Now, you can kind of imagine the scene here, right? I mean, we don't know what time of day it is, but, but I'm just, you know, as I think of the story, it's nice to think, and I think, what if it's around a campfire, right? You know, like, we men are not great always at sharing our feelings and talking about what's on our mind. So, but over a fire, you know, a bunch of guys together, and they're talking about all this, and they're kind of going, hey, you know, you kind of just turned on its head everything that we've thought. You just kind of made this, you know, flippant statement about the temple getting torn down, uh, you know, and it, you've, you know, you've already cleared the temple, you kind of already pronounced God's judgment on it, and we kind of would like to know a little bit more about what you're saying. You know, this temple that has basically been the center of everything they have believed about God their entire lives, and Jesus just said, yeah, this, it's just going to get totally ruined. They want to know more, so they ask Jesus for the sign, and Jesus is going to give them many signs along the way that tell them that it's not quite there yet. 
Now, Randy called me this week because uh, I taught a class for him earlier in the week and we were talking about that a little bit. And then when we were on the phone, he kind of chuckled for a minute and he said, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm sorry about going out of town and giving you maybe the most difficult passage in the book of Mark to kind of decipher through. And uh, we talked on the phone for a little bit, but you're about to see just in a minute some of the words that we're going to get to here that are just a little bit uh, difficult for us to, to kind of make sense of and stuff. We're going to unpack all that. Before we get to that, here's what I want to do. Okay, I want to take a quick time out for a little history lesson. Okay, I don't know how many of you are history people. You know, you just love learning facts about history. You just love, you know, learning all these, these great tidbits of trivia that you can tell everyone around you whether they care or not. Okay, some of us just love history here. I can tell by the smiles on your faces and the, by the looks on others' faces. I can tell maybe not so much. Okay, so for some of you, you know, you don't sit around and every free minute you get at home, you just watch specials on the History Channel. I don't understand why not, but maybe that's where you are, okay? So uh, we're going to take just a real quick time out to give a little bit of a history lesson here, okay? So the language that Jesus is about to use when he describes the destruction of the temple here, when he starts to talk about what's coming in the future, it's going to sound a little strange to us in the 21st century, okay? There's a reason for that. It sounds like what we call apocalyptic literature, Okay, I know that, you know, we're already starting to use words here, but we'll define them. Apocalypse just is a word that means unveiling or revelation. Apocalyptic literature, Jewish apocalyptic literature, is basically literature that, that concerns the final events before the end of time. It's God's people trying to make sense when they read their Bible, which was the Old Testament, when they read it, what is it that God is telling us is going to happen? And how do we understand that these events, how we know when these events are going on around us? There's a heavy, heavy use of imagery when it comes to apocalyptic literature. Much of that imagery sounds totally bizarre to us, okay? Because it's not the language that we use regularly like it was for them. Most of it's written between 2nd century BC, 2nd century AD, so you got about two or three hundred year uh, time period in there. A great example might be the Old Testament book of Daniel. Okay, if you've ever read through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, okay, it starts off with, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And, you know, there's the fiery furnace, and then, and then there's Daniel in the lion's den. And at this point, you know, it's pretty easy to understand all the events that are going on. Does It all makes perfect sense to us. Then all of a sudden you start to get to these visions that Daniel has, and things just kind of go crazy. Okay, if you spend much time reading Dan, the book of Daniel, it's like, oh man, okay, what exactly are we talking about? It's apocalyptic. It's looking forward to the future, to what the end times would look like. All right, God's people wanted to understand uh, how things would happen. And they had come to understand things would look like this. All right, we made a little chart to make this a little easier, okay? So Jewish apocalyptic theology, trying to understand what the end times look like. They, they understood, you know, that at some point uh, God created the world. Right? And, and we were created. We lived in the garden with God. We were in community with God the way things were supposed to be in our relationship with our creator. But you know the story, right? What did we do? We chose against our creator. We sinned. And when we sinned, we ushered in some things that we did not expect in that process. Okay, we call that, the, the, or they would have called that the kingdom of Satan, or sometimes the present evil age. And basically it was a time where, where we live in this world, and you probably understand what this feels like, right? We live in this world that is not what we were meant for. 
We have struggle. We have strife. We have all these things that come along with our sinful decision that, do not, that help us realize this is not what we were made for. We were made for something more. Well, the kind of culmination of this, the term that would have used is labor pains. And remember that because that's going to come back in a minute. Jesus is going to use, use it himself. But that would be kind of the, this, this, this desire for things to be set right, this begging for God to send his Messiah to come and change things forever. Okay, and that's what would happen. We'd have the day of the Lord. The Messiah would come back. God would send his Messiah, would bring in the kingdom of God. There would be eternal life for those who are righteous, who followed God, who did the things that he said. Uh, and, and then there would be punishment for God's enemies in the midst of all that. All this falls under the, to the big term we use is eschatology, the study of the end times, trying to understand. Okay, is everybody still with me? Have we lost any yet? Has anyone fainted? Okay, we're done with that. Okay, all this forms the basis for what Jesus is about to say. That's why I think it's important for us to take a really quick look at it. So here's what, here's what he says, verse 5. Jesus said to them, watch. This word watch is going to come back. He's going to use this two or three different times. By that, we don't just mean like we think of passively watching TV and just seeing those events go by. He's saying discern. Look at what's going on around you and pay attention to it. Be critical of what you take in. Watch that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. Remember the labor pains, those, that, that begging for God to set things right, to send his Messiah and end what we deal with, the struggle in this world. Now keep in mind, Mark's audience, these are Christians in Rome. So these are people who are already living in a pretty constant state of duress. They're being persecuted for their faith. You've got the Emperor Nero, who one of his hobbies is to impale Christians on a pole and set them on fire and light his dinner parties that way. Okay, so they're already facing some significant persecution in their lives. And Jesus used this term, birth pains, to say, remember, you know, this day of judgment is coming. For, uh, for, for first century uh, Jewish thinking, uh, motherhood, you know, having a child was kind of, kind of the ultimate validation of a woman's worth. If they were not able to work outside the home, if they didn't have careers like we would have today, then, then, then having children is kind of the ultimate showing what you, who you are and validating who you are as a person. And it also gives us a picture of one thing, one life coming to an end and one beginning, a whole new thing beginning. Verse 9, he says, You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. He's telling them that they're going to go through the same things that he will go through. If you remember, a couple weeks ago, uh, James and John, we talked about the, the, uh, the chapter where James and John come to Jesus and say, can we sit at your right and at your left? And Jesus says, can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? He's saying to them, can you deal with all the things that are going to come at me? And now he's telling them, Oh, you are. <laughs> oh, you're going to understand what suffering is all about in the midst of this as you follow me. 
Verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now we can kind of overanalyze that a little bit and say, oh, so it must first be preached. So, so we can hurry God's hand in all of this if we just share the good news of him faster, right? I'm not quite sure that what Jesus is trying to tell us is that we can somehow hurry the plan of God. I think what he's saying is the end is coming, people. You need to share the news about me with the world. Before it happens, you have no idea when it's going to happen, so go out there and talk to people about it before it does. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation. Now, now do you see why Randy said, hey, I'm sorry I left you with this one when I went out of town. Um, the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, and that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, so it sounds like a more scary term than it really is, okay? Uh, this is a reference again back to the book of Daniel. There are three references in Daniel to the abomination that causes desolation. Basically what that means is that something would happen in the temple that would defile or profane God's temple. That's essentially what we mean by this, that some event or something would take place and it would just profane God's temple, the place of worship for his people. Now, we don't know exactly what that is that Jesus was talking about or that's talked about prophesied in Daniel. That could mean something like some people put up uh, uh, an altar to a foreign god in the temple where they're supposed to be worshiping our god. It could be that a Roman emperor is going to put up a statue to himself and make people bow down to that. Or what many people believe it actually is, is, is looking forward to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. See, this is, in AD 70, the Romans come through, they finally just had enough of God's followers. They come through and they just kind of lay siege to Jerusalem and they destroy the temple. And so uh, one of our best guesses is that this kind of refers to that moment when that is going to happen, when the temple is just going to be no more. Well, as we read this, it's important to note this word Judea here. Because when we read words like this, Jesus' words, we kind of do this exactly what you saw in the video with Samuel L. Jackson talking about the end of the world and everything, right? We read these words and we assume this is, this is basically kind of an instruction manual for exactly how things will go for us today. You know, that, that if we just look around and we pick out the events that he talked about, we'll know when the end of the world is happening. We can predict it. Though we notice this, does it make any sense to you if this section of what he's talking about here is meant for us in the 21st century? Does it make any sense to you that all of us here in America, when these times hit, you know, and it all starts in the Holy Land, we've got to actually fly over to Israel and then flee there and run to the Judean hills? Probably not, right? That's probably not what makes the most sense. Again, he's giving them a window into what's happening, what is coming in Jerusalem when the temple gets destroyed. He's telling them specifically, and then he's got some words for all of us here at the very end of this section. Verse 15, let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. 
If the Lord had not cut short these days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Now, another time where it's probably going to be very easy to take some of our 21st century understanding and apply it to a text where it doesn't belong. Okay? Some of us around here in this room probably really, really, really get excited about like big, massive discussions about uh, predestination and free will. Okay? There are probably some of us in this room who just really love to argue about, you know, has God predestined everything? Has God made all the decisions of everything that's going to happen before the beginning of time and we're just kind of running along in his plan? Or has God given us free will on the other side and we make choices in the midst of the life he's given, but he knows the choices we're going to make. And, and we argue about Calvinism and Arminianism, and we, and we talk about are there those who are elect and who are chosen for heaven before the beginning of time, and those who are chosen not to go to heaven. All that stuff. If you enjoy those discussions, good for you. But don't apply them to that word here in this text, because that is not at all what he means by that. He's talking specifically about Jews, God's people, some of whom are going, be, going to be called by God to stay in Jerusalem when the bad things start happening, the destruction of the temple and everything else. They are, cha- they are going to be chosen to stay there and continue preaching to those who will listen. And he's saying God is going to take care and look out for those whom he has called to a specific task in the midst of all of this. Verse 21 At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear, perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard, I have told you everything ahead of time. Note what's missing from all the discussion he gives us here. Okay, there's no talk here about rapture. There's no talk here about the millennium. Is there a thousand years of struggle? Is there not a thousand years? How do we make sense of all that? There's no talk about a new Jerusalem, about a restoration of Israel. And there's no talk about Armageddon or any of those things. Do you know why those things don't make it into his words here? Because the point for Jesus is not for us to figure out the what and the when of, of, of the end of the world. The point is the how. How will you live in anticipation of the day that this world comes to an end? Jesus' very point is that you and I do not know. So live. Live your life. We'll skip down to verse 32. He says this. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It'll be like, it's, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So why do we spend so much time trying to figure out when exactly the end of the world will happen? Or what events will, will, uh, will precede it? You know, we read some of these things by Nostradamus. We look at the Mayan prophecy, which I hope we can all agree that either we misunderstood the Mayans or they're wrong, right? I mean, now that we're in 2013, we can kind of just move past the latest one that was everything to people. Or if it's cult preachers along the way, 
Or sometimes it's even well-meaning Christians who are trying to make sense of it all. I was at a coffee shop this week doing some prep for, uh, for today. And a couple saw, you know, all the commentaries I had spread out in my Bible and my notes and everything else. And, and asked me about what we were talking about. And they kind of started to give their thoughts on some of the events that are going on in our world today. And how that shows that some of this is, is coming true. And I was actually trying to say, well, I, I'm, I think actually the point is that we're not going to know. But all of us have kind of these ideas, right? Now we look around, people are constantly trying to figure out, and I don't think any of us or any of them in history have had any special knowledge that Jesus himself said he didn't have. You remember? Jesus just said, it's not for me to know, it's not for anyone to know, not the angels, it's for God alone to know. So what if we stop guessing and we start living? I I mean, Calculating the end only distracts us from our real mission, which is to share the good news about Jesus. See, can you imagine a conversation between you and God, or between you and Jesus, on the day that he returns, and it is the end of everything. You know, and so Jesus comes in, you know, there's a flash of light, and, and, and he comes in, there's earthquakes, there's all these crazy things happening, and you just make a beeline for Jesus, right? You just go run right up to him, and, and you know, and he says, welcome, child, and you say, Jesus, 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 you are going to be so proud of me, okay? I went through, and, and I, uh, uh, I added up all the numbers that I could find in the entire Bible, Okay, and then I took the square root of the distance uh, from the, the sun to the earth, and then when I divided by the number of vowels in the book of Mark, and at some point he just kind of, you know, uh, cuts you off and says, but, but did you tell people about me? And you say, well, you don't understand. I mean, it took every weekend to build my spreadsheets and come up with my predictions. And I was within a week of the time you actually showed up. Aren't you impressed? See, the calling that God has placed in your life is to live in constant readiness for the return of his son. And I think that should affect some things for your life. Living in constant readiness should affect the way you live. It should affect the way you raise your kids. It should affect the way you use your money. And it should affect the urgency with which you tell people about Jesus. I love movies. Okay, I don't know how many of you are movie fans. I love, 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 love movies. Okay, that's one of mine and Elizabeth's favorite pastimes. You know, we've had a long day or whatever. We put the kids to bed and we pop in a movie and just enjoy a movie together. I really do love movies. But I have to tell you that I hope when Jesus comes back, he doesn't find me watching a movie. I love chilies, okay? If, if you take any issue with anything we talk about here, let's get together at Chili's and talk about it. Okay, we'll have a great time. I love Chili's. But I have to tell you that when Jesus returns, I hope he doesn't find me at Chili's stuffing my face full of fajitas while I look out at someone holding a cardboard sign by the overpass. I love the Cubs. I don't know why, but I do. All right. <laughs> I love the Cubs. And if Jesus comes back while I'm at Wrigley Field, actually, you know what? If Jesus comes back while I'm at Wrigley Field, I have, I have one small thing I'm going to ask him for before the world ends, but <laughs> that's just neither here nor there. 
Maybe the bigger question for us is a heart issue. What excites you personally? What stirs your heart? Because if, if you get more excited about browsing the aisles at Best Buy than you do about reading your Bible, if you, get, if you get more excited about Thursday night spent watching The Office than growing your faith, if you get excited about Pinterest at all, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm messing around. I don't, even, honey, I don't even know what Pinterest is, do I? I have no idea. I'm just teasing. If, if you get more excited by bargain hunting than you do by faith sharing, then maybe you're not living a life of readiness for his return. Imagine what that life might look like for you. Imagine in your own life what a life lived in constant readiness for the return of Jesus would look like. Okay, and I'm not just talking about stoic seriousness. You can't have any fun. Okay, it doesn't mean you can't take your kids to a park. But maybe when you take your kids to a park, you're focused on your kids and not Facebook on your phone. It doesn't mean you can't have fun with your friends. But maybe you ask the question, where is that fun leading me right now in life? It doesn't mean you have to be reading your Bible all day long, but come on. Don't you want to at least give Jesus a fair shot at catching you reading your Bible when he returns? If I'm driving down the interstate and a car cuts me off in traffic, okay, my senses are heightened for a while, aren't they? I mean, you're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, and you pay attention for a while. I mean, everything around you, you notice so you can avoid the next idiot, right? I mean, that's kind of the point for you. But if you've ever been on a long trip, you know how this works. Sooner or later, comfort lures you back to sleep, doesn't it? The life of a Christ follower is the life of readiness for his return. The life of a Christ follower is a life of readiness for his return. Want you, where you are right now, why don't you just close your eyes. You can bow your head if you want. And I want to read Jesus' words to us just a couple more times. Just close your eyes and listen to these words. This is Jesus. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Okay, keep your eyes closed. Listen to that one more time. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch.